Many, many years ago now, when my boys were still babies and toddlers, we attended this big Baptist church not far from where we lived down in Houston. And as a mother to three boys who were four years of age and younger, my favorite days of the week tended to be Tuesdays and Thursdays when I got to take all three of those precious boys of mine down to that big Baptist church and drop them off for a solid five hours of Mother's Day out. I'll never forget this one particular morning. It was an absolute mess of a day. It was just raining and it was pouring something awful. And I had gotten all of my boys into the church and settled into their classrooms. And I was making my way back out to my car. And I spotted this mother walking her daughter across the parking lot. And they stood out to me because they were just moving so incredibly slowly and they were getting absolutely drenched in the process, despite the fact that they were both wearing rain jackets. So I quickly honed in on the thing that was slowing their progress. The little girl had some sort of physical handicap that required the use of a walker. And her mother was just patiently walking beside her, allowing the little girl to kind of take the lead as she just painstakingly inched her way across the parking lot and toward the church building in the pouring rain. Well, as soon as my mind kind of took in what was happening, I ran out to meet them with my umbrella in hand, and I asked the mother if I could escort them into the building. And I was honestly quite surprised when the mother very politely declined. And the words that she spoke to me next have stayed with me ever since. She told me one day, my daughter will be grown and she will have to know how to walk across the parking lot in the rain when there's no one there to help her. It's my job to teach her how to do these things. I have to prepare her for what lies ahead. I have thought of that mother countless times over the last decade of my life of her fierce determination to produce within her daughter the fortitude needed to conquer the life ahead of her. You see, every journey worth taking provides lessons in navigating the terrain ahead. And we have seen this principle at work as we have traveled alongside the Israelites throughout the book of Numbers. The journey that the Lord was taking them on was providing them with lessons that they would have to know to navigate the terrain ahead of them. And the lessons have been messy. We've seen that. They have even been painful. And it has seemed as if the Israelites have been terribly slow to learn. But every single one of these lessons was necessary. Each and every one specifically designed, we're told in scripture, to humble the Israelites, to test them so that the Lord would know what was in their hearts to know whether or not they would obey his commands. The Lord was fiercely determined to develop within his people the fortitude they needed to conquer that which he had promised them. But they could not conquer the land until they had completed the journey. Speaking of journeys, the very first thing that the Lord commands his people to do as they come to the end of theirs is simply look back on the terrain that they had traveled. So let's start reading in chapter 31, verse 1. Chapter 33, verse 1. 
These were the stages of the Israelites' journey when they went out of the land of Egypt by their military divisions under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. At the Lord's command, Moses wrote down the starting points for the stages of their journey. Chapter 33 of Numbers provides us with a travel log of 42 particular points along the route of the Israelites' journey through the wilderness. And although we haven't been given enough detail in scripture to understand the significance of each and every point, we certainly have learned enough through our studies of Exodus and Numbers to understand that this travel log provided them with quite a trip down memory lane. Remembering where they had been would remind the Israelites of key lessons that the Lord had taught them along the way. My husband and I have lived in five different homes over the course of our almost 18 years of marriage. And since all of these homes are somewhere in the greater Houston area, we have an opportunity to pass by them from time to time. It's not even uncommon for us to go out of our way to pass by one of these homes if we happen to be in that particular area of town. And we've made a point to try to do this with each of our boys because these homes aren't just dots on a map, but they actually contain a part of our story. So when we drive past these places, we take the opportunity to tell our boys that part of our story because as their parents, we understand that that is actually part of their story too. So if we're down near the Galleria, we'll make sure that we turn off on McHugh Road. And I'll point out the apartment building that's kind of tucked behind one of the many shopping areas in that part of town. And I'll say, do you see that third floor of this apartment building here on McHugh? That, that's where we moved when your dad and I first got married. Your mom was brand new to Houston and she could find, barely find her way to the end of the street without getting lost. And your dad had just graduated law school, and he had taken his first job at a law firm that is just around the corner from here. In fact, I could see it if I bent out far enough from the balcony of that apartment. And that is where we first started learning what it meant to be husband and wife. Or if we're over in the Heights area, we'll make sure that we take a turn down Shady Acres Landing Drive and Chris will point out to them the tall, skinny townhome that we lived in. And he'll say, that is the first house that we bought together. Cole, that's where we bought you home from the hospital 14 years ago. You came three weeks early and absolutely scared us to death. We had no idea what we were supposed to do with the baby when we got you home, but I think your mom did a pretty good job of eventually figuring it out. And on and on we could go as we recount the story of our lives as we drive past each of our old homes. And I think that in a sense, that is what the Lord is doing for the Israelites here. So as God leads Moses to recount these places, he's exhorting them, don't forget the places we've been. Don't forget the lessons we have learned. Don't forget what we have come to know to be true about God. So he takes them back to the very beginning. He takes them back to the time and the place of their enslavement. 
Because as Christy had pointed out back in week seven, it is very good for us to intentionally stop and remember those things from time to time because we cannot rightly appreciate where we now are if we don't accurately remember where we have been. So God reminds them that when he freed them, they were in a place of bondage. And he reminds them of how he had accomplished that, of the price that had been paid and of all that they had been spared. And he reminded them of the terrors that they had faced as they left the place of that enslavement. And he reminded them of the very great power of his deliverance in the midst of that. He reminded them of how he had supernaturally made provision for them as they journeyed alongside him in the wilderness. And he reminded them of the covenant that they had made and of the many different times in which they had broken it. He reminded them of how he had disciplined them and how he had corrected their wayward acts. And he reminded them and how he had been unwaveringly faithful to them through it all. You know, the thing that I found so interesting about this travel log is that as specific as it is to the Israelites' journey, it also bears a remarkable resemblance to each of ours. The places may well be different, but the remembrances are very much the same. He freed them and and he frees us. He redeemed them, he redeems us. He led them, he leads us. He saved them, he saves us. He provided for them, he provides for us. He has remained faithfully with them and he also has remained faithfully with each of us. God wanted Moses to record the details of this journey so that future generations would remember key aspects of the story that they shared as a people. Just like when my husband and I drive past our old homes because we want our boys to be acquainted with those places because we understand that that is part of what unites us and part of what defines us as a people. Those stories that we share I mean, haven't you seen that for yourself as we have journeyed for these many semesters now throughout the books of Exodus and Numbers? Have you seen how coming to know their story has in so many ways helped you to make better sense of your own? I know that for me, these last several semesters of study, that is one of the things that I will take away. I have been able to make so much more sense of parts of my story that I simply didn't know how they fit in by simply coming to learn that it's a repeat of the same journey that the Israelites had taken. And so we pass on those key aspects of our journey to those who come behind us. That is part of what unites us and defines us as a people. These stories that we share. After directing the Israelites' attention back to where they had been, he then assures them of where they are now going. In 3351, it says, tell the Israelites, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, 
Canaan, the land that the Lord had promised Abraham would be his descendants all of those many years ago. Canaan lay just across the Jordan River from the place where they are presently camped on the plains of Moab, and that is exactly where the book of Joshua will pick up, with the Israelites packing up and marching in. So this journey has taken so much longer than the Israelites could have imagined, but they have finally come to the end of their journey with God through the great and terrible wilderness. So God reminded them of where they had been. He then assures them of the place that they are very soon now going. And then the Lord spends the rest of these chapters in Numbers giving the Israelites instructions regarding what they are to do when they get there. So first, they receive specific instructions regarding the inhabitants of the land. So we're gonna read in 3352. You must drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you, destroy all their stone images and cast images and demolish all of their high places. You are to take possession of the land and settle in it because I have given you the land to possess. Verse 55, but if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, those you allow to remain will become barbs for your eyes and thorns for your sides. They will harass you in the land where you live. And what I had planned to do to them, I will do to you. God is strikingly clear regarding the Israelites' responsibility toward the inhabitants of the land. They are to completely drive them out. They were to destroy their, the trappings of their vain religions, and they were to unapologetically move in and take possession of the land because the Lord had given them the land to possess. Now, we've already covered this topic several times throughout our study of this second part of the book of Numbers, but I absolutely think that it bears repeating. God's command to the Israelites here in regards to their conquest of Canaan was a mandate for a specific time, for a specific place, and for a specific people. This was in no way an endorsement of religious warfare. And Israel understood this. They never tried to conquer any other land, and they never tried to expand their territory beyond that, which the Lord very clearly goes on to find in the very next chapters. I also think it's important for us to pause and acknowledge the fact that the conquest of these people were not prompted by any sort of racial or cultural prejudice. God was not driving the people of Canaan out of the land because they were not Israelites. We have seen many times over in the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers, God's willingness to take into the fold of Israel people from other nations. The Lord was driving the Canaanites out of the land because of their extreme wickedness, which he had very patiently endured for hundreds of years. So I, I want you to see how clearly Moses communicates this to the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter nine. He says, when the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. 
Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. You are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promises he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So these verses in Deuteronomy remind us that the Israelites' inheritance of the land hinge solely on the faithfulness of God, absolutely not on the merit of his people. God would remain faithful to, first of all, execute judgment upon the wicked, and secondly, to deliver on the promises that he had made to his people. God didn't merely command the Israelites to drive out the inhabitants of the land, but he also commanded them to completely lay waste to everything in the land that would pose as a potential rival to his rule over their lives or to the integrity and the purity of their worship and their service to him. And they were to be absolutely un compromising in this. We already saw back in Numbers chapter 25 with the Peor incident what a great, great threat these things were going to pose to the people of Israelites. So when they went in to possess the land of Canaan, they were to proactively address the things that they knew would be temptations to them. And if they did not, then they would later face the exact same judgment that the Canaanites were facing now. After giving instructions regarding the inhabitants of the land, the Lord then moves on to give some instructions regarding the land itself. So as we glimpse very quickly at the last few chapters of Numbers, we're going to see God giving instructions regarding the boundaries, the division, the distribution, and the purity of the land. And each and every one of these instructions provides us with just important glimpses into the amount of detail and to the amount of wisdom and the sovereignty and the practicality of the Lord. So here's just a couple of things that I wanted to make sure that we noticed. And the first has to do with the boundaries. So let's read in 34.1. The Lord spoke to Moses Command the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, it will be allotted to you as an inheritance with these borders. And then the Lord goes on to very clearly define the boundaries of the land that he was giving his people. On the north, south, east, and west, he clearly defines the land that was theirs. Now, something that I want you to understand is that the Lord did not merely give boundaries for the land of promise as a whole, but he also assigned specific boundaries and portions to the land that was to be given to each tribe. And later on in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua goes into great detail on this matter. We're even going to see that there were boundaries within each tribe's portion determined by the families or the clans. So we had national boundaries, we had boundaries for each tribe, and then we also had boundaries for each family and clan. 
and let's recognize that that was a whole lot of boundaries. And the importance of the systematic assignment of the land in this way, along with those boundaries, is emphasized by the fact that here in Numbers chapter 34, the Lord himself assigns the names of the men who were to be responsible for making sure that this was carried out. So the Israelites were given their boundaries, and they were not to take that which wasn't theirs. The amount and type of land that the Lord had given each one of them was sufficient for everything that they needed. Each individual Israelite could live out the purpose that the Lord had for their lives within the boundaries and with the limits of the land that the Lord had given them. This is a really important point that the Lord is making here that I think we could very easily miss. I mean, this point is so important that we come back to the issue of Zelophehad's daughters because of this point, and that is the note on which the entire book of Numbers ends. So members of the tribe of Zelophehad's daughters, which was the tribe of Manasseh, they come to Moses with a very valid point. They foresee a circumstance in which one of these daughters could marry outside of their tribe, the tribe of Manasseh, and in that case, their land, which rightly is a part of the land of the tribe of Manasseh, could have been transferred to the tribe of their husbands. And they didn't think that should be allowed to happen. And the Lord agreed. He didn't think that should be allowed to happen either. And I hope that you notice the fact that the daughters... They agreed as well. They were the ones who, back in chapter 27, so courageously made a stand to have this land that they believed to be theirs. So they knew better than anyone else how important it was that this land remained with its rightful owners. So the point that I want you to see here is that the boundaries that the Lord had given his people were important. And there's a point of application here that I wasn't expecting to find as I was studying this material, but don't we seem to be a people who are obsessed with the things that aren't ours? It seems like we just have some natural fight or tendency in us to push against any limitations, any boundaries, or any borders that we are given, but everything that we see in Scripture points us to the fact that those are all very good things. Psalm 16.6 says that the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So this served as a really powerful reminder to me as I was studying this week that I should not waste my life away pining for those things which the Lord has not given me. That which he has given me is sufficient. It is everything that I need. And I can accomplish the purpose that the Lord has for my life within the boundaries, given any limitations, within the bounds of what the Lord has provided. So, and then if we look to chapter 35, it's almost as if God is just offering us 
a case in point. So after determining the boundaries of the land and the portion that was to be given to each tribe, God very specifically lays out the portions and places from each tribe's inheritance that were to be given to the Levites. And some of those are gonna be dedicated as cities of refuge. So here again, we're just seeing the point being emphasized that the Lord is going to provide each and every one of his people exactly what they need. And one of the things that I hope that you noticed as you were studying through chapter 35 is just that the amount of detail that the Lord included in that chapter is absolutely striking. The Lord details the exact number of cities that were to be given to the Levites. He details the exact numbers which were to be dedicated as cities of refuge. He detailed the exact amount of pasture land that was to be attached to each city. And then he even details the proportionate amounts that were to be taken from each tribe in order to accommodate his commands. One of the things that surprised me most about the book of Numbers is just how beautifully it displays how intimately God is involved in the tiniest details of our lives. And I saw it here as I was trying to make sense with what I was supposed to do with 500 yards and 500 yards and 500 yards. Right? I've never been much of a numbers person, but I think I've seen throughout the course of this study that those numbers point to such specific details. They were seen, they were counted out by the Lord, and I really found it quite beautiful. Also through the distribution of the land given to the Levites, we see another um, side of the Lord's provision for his people. So by the Lord's design, the Levites were going to live scattered throughout the people of Israel. So practically speaking, the Lord was providing pastors for his people. The Levites were the one who would perform ceremonies, marriages, circumcisions, funerals. The Levites were the ones who were spiritually going to lead the Israelites. So we see that by God's design, the Levites were to live within reach of every single tribe of Israel. So the last thing that I want you to see regarding the Lord's final commands to the Israelites, what they are to do when they first enter the land of Canaan, is the very great emphasis that he placed on the purity of the land. So I'm reading in 3533. Do not defile the land where you live, for bloodshed defiles the land, and there can be no atonement for the land because of the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of the person who shed it. Do not make the land unclean where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, reside among the Israelites." So there was a lot about the cities of refuge and the manslayer and the intentional and unintentional killing in chapter 35. And we don't have enough time to go in depth on all of that. But what I do want you to take away is that at the end of the day, one of the main purposes of the cities of refuge was to protect the purity of the land. 
it was to minimize the amount of damage caused by the unintentional taking of a human life and to protect against the further tragedy of a life being intentionally taken in response to the life that was unintentionally taken because that would have defiled the purity of the land. And because the Lord their God was gonna continue to dwell with the Israelites even once they moved into the land of Canaan, the land had to remain pure. Because if the Israelites defiled the land as the previous inhabitants had defiled the land, then they too would be exiled from it. But that is a story that is better left told by the rest of the Old Testament. And so the book of Numbers closes. These are the commands and ordinances the Lord commanded the Israelites through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Now, I realize that these closing chapters of Numbers probably felt a bit like a hodgepodge as you were studying through it this week. And after all of the action that we have seen in this particular book of the Bible, you might be tempted to feel like this was a bit of a letdown, maybe a little bit anticlimactic. But given that the entire book of Numbers has actually looked forward to the time when the Israelites would take possession of the land of promise, I think that it's actually quite fitting that the book of Numbers ends by the Lord telling them what they are to do when they actually go in and take it. The book of Numbers has emphasized so many times throughout the narrative that in his sovereignty, the Lord was going to give his people the land. But the fact that the Lord was giving them the land, that he said many times that he had already given it to them, did not diminish the fact that they had a responsibility yet to go in and take it. And that is the part of the journey that lies ahead of the Israelites still. As New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, scripture makes clear that the Lord also has given us many things. You know, the territory that the Lord gave the Israelites to go in and conquer was physical, but the territory that he has placed before us to conquer is spiritual. The New Testament tells us that as believers in Jesus Christ, we all have been given everything that we need to live a godly life. That we have been given not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. That we have been given eternal life. That we have been given redemption, forgiveness, grace, we have been given an imputed righteousness. We have been given love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As believers in Jesus Christ, God has given us these things. But just like the Israelites had to go in and take the land, so must we also go in and take those things which he has given us. And then my friends, we are to live as women who actually possess those things. 
And that, my friends, is the journey that lies ahead of each of us. So it's gonna be very important that we remember that every journey worth taking provides lessons in navigating the terrain ahead. And that yes, these lessons will be messy, painful even, and sometimes we will be so terribly slow to learn. But every single lesson will be necessary, each and every one of them specifically designed by the Lord to humble us, to test us so that God will know what is in our hearts, whether or not we will obey his commands. Women, aren't you so terribly grateful that we serve a God who is so fiercely determined to produce within his people a fortitude needed to conquer that which he has promised us?